I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. Hello and welcome to To the Republic, a show dedicated to history, civics, and U.S. institutions. I am your host, Jake, and I am joined once again by your host, Jeff Lopez. I'm back. He is back. I I'm am thrilled so to be excited. back. Thank you for having me back. Of course. You're um, always... This is your show, dude. This is much of your show I than it is mine. love what you've been doing. Thank you. In my time off. Um, just, just informative. Things, you know, it, you go and... When you choose the topic, it's always an opportunity for me to learn. I came to it by watching the Democratic debates and in, in kind of reading the, the discussion around the different candidates. And it's like... There's such a division. It seems like there's such a division within the party. Like we mm -hmm. have that. Like there's the progressive wing and there's the moderate wing. Right. And you hear a lot about both sides. Want you know can pro can a progressive candidate beat the um you know beat the incumbent president in November or is it is it safer to go with a moderate or is a moderate just you know more of the same? And oh, absolutely. There's all of these debates surrounding that. Yeah. And I was like, but what is it that fundamentally makes the biggest difference between a moderate and and a in a further left wing progressive. And I, so when I was going up between the, you know, different topics I could go over for this particular oh, right. episode, it yeah. was, you know, the difference between the progressive wing and the mo more moderate wing of the, within the democratic product party, I found like the, the biggest difference in terms of ideologies comes down to economics. And I think the the biggest contention between moderates and progressives is to what extent the government should say, uh, should have a say in the economy and the economic choices of its citizens, mm -hmm. both on the supply side, the producers, right. and the demand side, the consumers of that equation. In this in this episode, I want to survey four different uh, economic theories slash ideas that underpin political economic ideology, mm -hmm. and the pol uh, and those are the policies of socialism, free market economic um, economics slash capitalism mercantilism and social democracy so i'm sure there's a few terms our listeners have heard of, you know obviously socialism is is thrown over, around a lot in our right. discourse and capitalism and you know those are like the two big ones for sure not so much with social democracy and the much older mercantilism which has kind of died out but right. when we get to talking about mercantilism i think we'll see that it's actually kind of coming back a bit right um especially through trade mm -hmm. and I, we can talk a little bit if that's good or bad but right. uh those are kind of like the four main political uh political economic philosophies that you see kind of govern so with those four i want to talk about how governments uh institute them through policies and what that might look like and at different points has you know we can kind of discuss too how the united states has has employed kind of met, um, policies from all four ideologies and kind of where we're heading now we always kind of take a future trajectories look right um and one th one kind of point of contention for me is like we're talking about like how the word the term socialism or just is kind of like haphazardly thrown around Absolutely. um without really like paying attention to the differences and i think both sides kind of do this one side labels themselves as socialists when they're not really advocating for socialism and the right. other side just calls everything socialism for sure and that's just kind of a point because there is a fundamental difference between socialism and social democracy mm -hmm. um and that's just it's a and a lot of times that that terms is either misused or conflated 
And that's just kind of a point of contention for me. So we'll definitely break that down. Um, anyway, before I start on this whirlwind venture into political mm-hmm. economy, I want to draw attention to the other shows on KXRW. Uh, Filibusters with John Oberg, uh, The Common Good with Joe Clemens are amazing shows that discuss important issues in the greater Vancouver area. If you, know, if you have an eclectic music taste, I encourage you to check out Gordon Green's Music Planet or The Mud Club with Ivan Ivan. Or if you want to listen to some really cool local bands, check out The Vibe with Ryan Reed. If you like KXRW and if you like what KXRW is doing and you want to support us, please consider donating. You can do so by going to kxrwvancouver.org. Any donation helps keep this radio station going and ensures that this community this community continues to have a voice. So now let's uh, talk some economics. All right, I'm buckled in, dude. All right, we'll start <laughs> with mer- we'll start with mercantilism because yeah. it's the oldest of the four. I highlighted earlier, but also because it's created an it created the economic environment for capitalism. And in the opinion of some, ultimately caused the American colonies to rebel from the British. Mm-hmm. We'll start with a short clip from Investopedia, which is a great resource for understanding economic concepts in terms. And then I'll go a little deeper into this idea from there. So here we go. Colonial America, when we were part of the British Empire, our trade with the rest of the world was governed by mercantilist policies. What was mercantilism? Mercantilism was the conception, widely held in the 18th century, that there is a finite amount of wealth in the world. And because of that, countries had to compete to acquire as much of that wealth as possible. Now, to achieve this goal, it was felt that government policy should regulate trade in such a way that a country exported as much as possible and imported as little as possible. Such policies usually included tariffs and other taxes on imports. In the 17th and 18th centuries, there was an intensive global imperial rivalry. In the New World, this took the shape of the Spanish in Latin America mining gold and silver, the British in North America planting tobacco and other staple commodities, the French in Canada trapping furs and fishing, and then the British and the French together in the Caribbean, known as the West Indies, planting and harvesting sugar. Colonies in the mercantilist era were seen as a way of enriching the home country, and their trade was regulated accordingly. The mercantilist system functioned as follows. Colonies would sell raw materials to the home country, where they would be manufactured and then sold back to the colonies as finished goods. Colonists were banned for competing with manufacturers in the home country. The British colonists in what is now the United States exported a variety of raw materials, such as tobacco, rice, and codfish to Great Britain in exchange for luxury items imported from London, such as services for tea, finer clothing, eyeglasses, and much else. From the 1650s through the 1760s, the British Parliament imposed a series of laws collectively called the Navigation Acts to regulate, monopolize, and tax American trade. The laws included provisions requiring colonists to trade only with English ships, to trade only from a list of approved goods. This was to prevent the development of a colonial market for goods Britain might not be able to supply regularly, and to pass all goods traded with other countries through English ports to be taxed. For example, in 1733, the Molasses Act was passed due to political pressure from British sugar producers. 
The act sought to ban New England merchants from buying French sugar to make rum. But the Americans routinely evaded the law by smuggling goods. Another issue was that Britain was often at war with other potential trading partners of the American colonists. The biggest of these was the French and Indian War of 1754 to 1763, which left Britain 132 million pounds in debt. Now, making payments on this debt consumed 60% of the annual budget in the 1760s and 1770s. Parliament dealt with this crisis by passing another series of navigation acts that included the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, and the Townsend Acts. All of these were new taxes and tariffs designed to help Britain collect the revenue it needed to pay the large cost of empire. Now, aware that smuggling was becoming a colonial pastime, Parliament sent royal customs officials to America to ensure that taxes were being collected and to try to stamp out illegal imports. The Americans became fiercely opposed to this round of new taxes and regulatory measures, insisting upon no taxation without representation and arguing that their natural commercial rights were being violated. Americans mounted a stern resistance against what they felt were burdensome imperial economic dictates. Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in the same year, 1776, that the Declaration of Independence was written. Smith attacked mercantilism and promoted free trade and markets, guided not by government regulation and policy, but by what he called an invisible hand of supply and demand. These two works, The Declaration of Independence and Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, told the story of the onset of the American Revolution and foretold the creation of a republic with both economic and political freedom. The imperial taxes on commerce and trade had led the American colonies to fight the American Revolution and declare their independence. So before, you know, when you sent this video to me to kind of analyze, um, the first thing that I took away from it was this idea of a finite amount of wealth. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and when you're in this, this episode, you know, most, or this, um, this video mostly is discussing the American colonies, right. And its yeah. relationship to, um, Britain, but also in, uh, in relation to the world and trade and, 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 and how all of that expanded. But it's just interesting how this, this isolationist protectionist idea ultimately led to the Americas, the, the United States developing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but the video did a great job at laying out kind of like how everything slowly just led to one thing or another. The, if, if this idea of finite amount of goods um, and you're only exporting a limited amount of things, right? Yeah. Naturally you're going to run out. So then that led to establishing colonies. Right. Yeah. And then now, now you have another resource of goods, but now you, you can see how that can be problematic. Mm -hmm. Mercantilism to succeed when you're closing off your borders to foreign goods to try right. to protect your, your domestic economy. You see this a lot. Um, and actually in, in, uh, fledging countries with, with, uh, exports that are only in, in one or two sectors, mm -hmm. unlike a diversified economy like the United States. But um, you'll see a lot of protectionist policies because what happens when you use tariffs and you use quotas, what it does is it, it artificially hires, um, drives the price higher domestically for that product. Right. So with, um, with mercantilism specifically, which is going to put high amounts of tariffs on all products coming in, coming in, right? 
so what that does is that because it's increasing increasing costs, what it does is it helps the suppliers in in producers oh. because they're getting more for their goods and they don't have to compete with foreign goods, right? right. So if France and England are both both have um, sugar plantations yes. in the Caribbean, if other place, if like say another colony in the in the British Empire wanted to buy French sugar, oh, it, it, it yes. will naturally that competition right. will naturally drive down prices. Right. So they wanted to because there was this this view that any sort of relative gains made by others was a direct threat to national security. Mm. That you wanted to limit the amount of trade that your subjects were doing with others right. because not only was it tied to, did you think it was tied to your nation's wealth, but it was also tied to your nation's security. Mm-hmm. And what this ultimately did was over time, you see this with the expansion of colonies, especially in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. In uh, with, with the, uh, what they call the, um, you know, the carving up of Africa and the, right. and the, um, uh, the conference of 1885 and 1886. Mm-hmm. The hope was, is that this was going, to, all, this colonial game was going to push away tensions from the metropoles, which are the the the, the, the centers of the empire in yeah. Europe, but really all that did was create tensions all over the rest of the map as these different empires were maneuvering to try to get it complicates colonies. it so much. It, it does, and because <laughs> colonies were captured markets right. where they would extract the the raw resources back to the industrial facilities in the metropole, right. and they would sell it back to those colonies at a higher price. Yeah, it's insane. So it's the only <laughs> the only way that mercantilism works because over time, because you're, you're keeping those, those consumer goods high due to tariffs and lack of competition from outside sources, mm-hmm. you have to try to, you have to try to way to make that production cheaper. And the way to do that is to have essentially slave labor right. in these colonies. Right. So the video talked about a finite amount of, of wealth, right? But I can't help but think of this finite amount of 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 exports and goods, but then also almost a limited lifetime of what you can do. So at first it's just the the state's goods and only what they have. And now that they've colonized a new place, it's like a new lease on life as far as economically. They, you know, you're only exporting certain amount of things until you until people started colonizing other places. Now you have new goods that you can include in that whole economic system. But it just seemed like there uh, there was a finite amount of wealth, but a finite amount of success in that economic system. You're spot on with that. And that was one of um, Adam Smith's biggest critiques of mercantilism is that um, states aren't specializing. And we get into something that's called comparative advantage. And that is that... You, you are most most productive when you're doing what you do best, mm-hmm. and because not not every single country is going to be really really good at making a specific oh. thing. So if you special if a if a country specializes in what they're best at, mm-hmm. or if even you, we can break this down to even even simpler like simpler level, which if you've got like a hundred people all working towards one finished product, mm-hmm. if you have one person who from this beginning to the end makes everything for, I don't know, a desk, right? right. And you have each person working from the start to finish on one particular desk. That's a slower process under capitalist thought oh, than if, like if you had one person who just focuses on drawers, one person just focuses on knobs, one person focuses on putting it all together. Right. That assembly line, production line, everybody spe- everybody specializes in one specific thing. Mm-hmm. One that creates more jobs, but oh, two, yeah, you spe- you're that specialization will actually increase productivity. Mm, okay. And because you're limited in when, if you take that, that thought and mm-hmm. you apply it to the macro level that over time, 
you talk talking about the about the trading between nations. If a nation specializes in one particular thing really, really well, and mm-hmm. it trades for the stuff that it doesn't, it's actually better off. Absolutely, that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, really, mercantilism today can't be successful because colonies are just not a thing that exists anymore. Right. It just because one of international norms and. That's just a practice that really is not acceptable anymore. Like mm-hmm. you just a, a nation just can't go and full on colonize, right? Per se, mm-hmm. you, you you can still see bits of it rising up and in, in around the uh, around the world. Like what is Puerto Rico to the United States, right? right? But uh, ultimately, ca- uh, in order for mercantilism to be sustainable over time, is it needs those captured markets, and those just don't exist any. Those right. just don't exist anymore. Um, but I, that's not to say that protectionism doesn't still exist. Right. And I think that the this use of tariffs and quotas and stuff by the president to try to force other countries to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do using the, the weight of, and the economic power of the United States, I think definitely kind of harkens back to that very isolationist, hard border style vision of the state mm-hmm. and its economy that was prevalent during the mercantilist um, era. Right. So with that, I think we're going to take a break. On the when we come back, Jeff and I are going to then discuss the next two uh, political economic theories, uh, and that is capitalism and socialism. We'll talk a little bit about uh, tragedy of the commons. Um, thank you for listening to the Republic. I'm Jake, and I'm Jeff. We'll be right back. Why settle for fast food when you can have fresh food? At 6th Avenue Bistro, the menu emphasizes local ingredients and authentic preparations that highlight the flavors, textures, and colors of the season. More information available about their menu, happy hour, and catering services at 6thAvenueBistro.com. And Farrar's Bistro is their sister restaurant, also located in Vancouver, Washington. With its family-friendly vibe and comfort food with a flair, Farrar's Bistro has attracted both Vancouver locals and out-of-towners since their doors first opened in 2007. More information available at FarrarsBistro.com. That's F-A-R-R-A-R-S-Bistro.com. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. You are listening to To the Republic on KXRW. I'm Jake. And I'm Jeff. In our last segment, we talked about different political economic theories and how they kind of relate to this broader debate about economics that is happening in the United States and the term socialism and capitalism. And we, we just want to kind of define those and give a little bit of a discussion ar- around what they are and how they influence policy. Um, just so when you are having a discussion about that amongst yourselves and with people out and about, you have a little bit of better understanding of what those terms actually mean. Right. So um, I brought up Adam Smith, who's mm-hmm. who's been kind of considered the father of economics, um, economic theory, and he is attributed with the theory of capitalism. Right. And capitalism is an economic system in which private individuals or businesses own capital goods. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest difference between capitalism and socialism is that on one hand, the, the state owns the means of production, which is the, all of the goods and everything necessary f- to, for making things. Right. 
um, versus capitalism, which is all of the goods and services in the production of those goods and services are owned by the people. And right. then really it comes on like private property. Property is such a big thing in both of these kind of combative ideologies. Mm-hmm. And really, um, so capitalism is, is, is arguing for that kind of the French term laissez-faire um, capitalism um, where private individuals are unrestrained within within the, the sphere of economic. And restrained by the government. Restrained by the government. Right. And they can, they're free to make and sell whatever they want, buy whatever they want. There is no restrictions on um, on them. on them. And it should be noted that there really is, in today's society, and really never, and even throughout history, there mm-hmm. has never been a purely capitalist or a purely socialist um, economy. Right. There were somewhere on every state, every country is somewhere on the spectrum of being Absolutely. a mixed. There are, there are, there's control sides to every economy and there's open right. uh, market sides to every economy. But kind of understanding capitalism, it's functionally speaking, capitalism is one process by which problems of economic production and resources distribution might be resolved. Instead of planning economic decisions through centralized political methods, as with socialism or feudalism, economic planning under capitalism occurs via decentralized and voluntary decisions. Um, Private property promotes efficiency by giving the power of resources an incentive to maximize the value of their property. So the more valuable the resource is, the more trading power it provides the owner. In a capitalist system, the person who owns the property is entitled to any value associated with that property. For individuals or businesses to deploy their capital goods confidently, a system must exist that protects the rights um, to own and transfer private property. A capitalist society will rely on the use of contracts, fair dealings, and tort law to facilitate the enforce these private property rights. You know, I think what's interesting about that, this idea of introducing private property into this capitalist discussion. Um, I think that's interesting because, you know, to talk about to talk about goods and market and production and, you know, a business or a company making something and then deciding how, like you said earlier, how they sell it or what they buy, you know, talking about it in those terms, it's very, I don't know, I don't want to say it's theoretical, but it kind of is. It's just like, you're just having a conversation, but I think when you use that idea and apply it to private property, let's let's imagine you own property. Yeah. What do you want to do with that property? Do you want to be told what to be what you can and cannot do with that property? I think that's an interesting way to kind of specify it, to put it into something in a way that people can kind of relate to. So you're you inherit land or you're given land. Okay, what would you like to do with that land? Opposed to now in the on the flip side, and we'll get there, but having the government tell you what you can and cannot do with that land, or if you can even own it, or if you even own it. I think the introduction of this idea of property, I think, and 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 if you use that word with the goods, you take goods out and you say property, it's the same idea. But I'm I'm thinking about land specifically. Yeah, I think that really helps kind of put in perspective this idea of, you know, it, it, I think it's a it's a long. It's a long established idea, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, this is my land. You know yeah. what I mean? This idea of land or taking land, as we've seen historically. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, having a piece of land and being told what you can and cannot do with it, that just seems so foreign or or seems so antithetical to what we've grown up knowing and what the nation has kind of mm-hmm. already established. Yeah. So when you use those same ideas and apply it to a business... It, it transcends perfectly, and, and, and it, it, it's the same thing. But I, I just like that idea of the, when you when you when you use the analogy of land. I think perfectly explains it. Yeah, I think that 
a capitalist theorist would would take that that theory of land as being so fundamental because that is like the most tangible thing any of us can own right right and um it creates incentives for you to protect that resource or to make right. that to not let that resource go away because you have an investment in keeping it around because mm-hmm. that is your wealth right that is something you own um so like so the 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 argument behind capitalism is that it is the strongest driver of economic growth by creating those incentives for entrepreneurs to reallocate away resources from unprofitable channels into areas that consumers value more highly so what kind of what that means is that you're not going to just create an excess of one particular thing right. because you like it you're trying to create oh. you're trying to create something or that is going to meet the demands of a lot of different people so you can right. you can um you can be profitable from that right there's the um you've talked to me about this before on our podcast about the baker mm-hmm. and the brewer and the butcher yeah. right mm-hmm. and how they're providing they're making goods for people to buy which they're paid to do mm-hmm. that's that's the sign of a diversified economy mm-hmm. that i'm not going to do everything I'm not going to brew my own beer. I'm not going to slaughter, grow and slaughter my own pigs and then mm-hmm. bake my own bread. I can focus on growing a lot of bread mm-hmm. and buying the things with my excess wealth. So I, I sell my bread. I gain back excess from mm-hmm. that. So I sell it for what I for more than what it costs me to make. Right? right. That excess wealth I can then use to buy the things that I don't have. Right. But I was getting the point I wanted to make was mm-hmm. that what you were saying is there are people who want to buy bread. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're not making something that people don't want. Exactly. You're but you're buying a product that people want to buy. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and one of the critiques of a command economy or a socialist economy is that those decisions are not made by the by the producers, mm-hmm. by the people who own that, it's made by the government who is trying who is trying to determine what levels of demand would be. Whereas oh. in a laissez-faire idea, is that everything exists on a basically on a graph, mm-hmm. like and you're trying to find the perfect equilibrium between supply and demand. And the the thought behind capitalism is that if you let the aggregate demand and the aggregate supply, which is basically which is basically all purchasing and all manufacturing mm-hmm. decide that is that it, it does it much better more naturally because you have suppliers who are seeing, okay, well so much of this particular unit is only selling so much. So we're only going to make this much next quarter right. versus a government who's less responsive to that. And, and, and is a little more clunky at maneuvering. It's much slower to recognize. And they're going to say, well, we're going to create so much mm-hmm. of this, but that creates that can create so much inefficiency because what if they make too much or they make too little? Too little will spike will cause the the, the prices to skyrocket. Right. Too much causes the the causes it to prices to crash. Creating price guarantees also creates inefficiency. Mm-hmm. So the thought process here is that um, even though capitalism is prom- is prone to shocks, you have high volatility. You can have necessarily high volatility within the market. It is still a better option to. A, a state, a completely state owned. By the volatility, economy. you're talking about the peaks and the recessions. Yes, exactly. Okay. So you have, you know, you have, um, you know, recessions when, you know, aggregate demand drops, right. and then you have um, it picks up when aggregate demand rises. Mm-hmm. So now we've kind of highlighted what the kind of basics of capitalism is in terms of uh, political economy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, there's clearly critiques, and I think right. that's one of the the biggest complaints with 
capitalism today is that cap, um, is that capitalism is not equitable. Or or also the argument for maybe more state influence or or um, control in some aspects. Definitely. You know, the critiques are always going to the counter to the critiques is always going to be like, well, we need the government to regulate something. So what are some of the critiques that you found? Uh, the capitalist economy is um, uncons- is unconcerned with equitable arrangements. So it's okay. this dichotomy between equity and efficiency. If you think about it, kind of like the difference between um, uh, supply and demand. They're, they have inverse relationships to each other. Right. So equity and efficiency is kind of the same thing. If you're going to get complete max production, you're not oh, worried. Okay. You're not worried about a lot of the things right. that humans ma- care about, right? right. You're, we're not all Vulcans here, so it's you're you're we're not concerned with you know how many hours in a week a worker is going right. to, is going to work. We're not concerned with what ultimately it does to what our production does to the environment oh, okay per se yeah now in the long run we may care about that because if you're if you're making things above its carrying capacity right ultimately you're going to be making less and less quality goods because the resources aren't there the resources are depleted we're not doing anything to maintain that right that gets us into the the problem of the tragedy of the commons which is to use an analogy is you have like a a, a massive grassland pasture mm-hmm. and and I'm a and I'm a oh, sheep. Oh, you've told me this. I love this. I love <laughs> and I, this. And I'm a sheep herder, yes. right? And so this is a sheep herder analogy. Yeah, and it's one of my favorite things. And Again, reverting back to land for the analogy, <laughs> it's so good. So it's this is a free access piece of grass, right? Me as an individual sheep herder, I cannot keep you, another sheep herder, from allowing your sheep to to graze. No, on it. you cannot. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> so the 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 problem is is that you and I have enough sheep. That and, and there's enough grassland that no matter what, we're not going to really ever rip, we're not going to ever diminish this resource for one another. For one another, right? But as others start to come in, other sheep herders, other people wanting to use those grasslands, mm-hmm. because it's open access, we can't exclude them either. So ultimately, we can either try to regulate ourselves, mm-hmm. which. I can't trust without an arrangement right. that you and I are going to make the arrangements and also with these, with these other sheep herders Absolutely. that are going to preserve this resource. That was my first thought. You and I make an arrangement now f- to help each other mm-hmm. out against the others. Now they might be arranging things and it could just get so complicated. It can get very complicated, <laughs> but also think about it. If, if I know that if I ration myself, but you're yes. rationing your sheep, right? you're going to that resource is going to be gone anyway so i might as well use as much as i can because i can't trust that somebody else isn't going to, to do that to, same to thing. the same thing so right. what it causes is tragic in nature because we would all be better off cooperating and right. trying to limit ourselves in its usage but because there isn't a isn't sort of any sort of regulation that that regulates behavior mm-hmm. Any sort of government entity or a private ownership of something that where i can enforce a specific behavior ultimately that grassland all dies off because we're all using as much as we can because right. we, we, we don't we don't trust each other capitalism's uh, way of fixing tragedy of the commons is to make the commons no longer open access but to make it private in that way there's an oh, owner of that who okay. has a incentive to keep that source livable right but the problem is now that's private i can it can be exclusive I can mm. tell people who can, you know, who can't go right, on it. Right. So there's other sheep herders who need that resource, but 
but I'm telling them because I I can control who comes on. It's just my private property. Right. I'm not worried about the equity of everybody being able to use it. Right. On the flip side, is you have the pu- you can have a public ownership of the commons, mm-hmm. which is you know you you form a we say you and me and some other sheepherders get together and we decide okay we're going to regulate this. We don't really own it, but we're like the stewards of it. Right. We can go and we use the combined force to govern people's usage over it. Mm-hmm. Now, in any particular commons, it can be grasslands, it can be oceans, it can be anything in the environment, anything that's a like that that is a finite resource that right. through overusage is going to be destroyed. The answer to whether it should be public or private is up in the air, and and, and it's not, and you can't really it, say that one is good for every other every other instance. But it's finding that that middle ground mm-hmm. between that between private and public ownership, right. I think, is really kind of where we're trying to aim for. Right. So when you're talking about that that equity mm-hmm. on the macro scale, are we talking about equity as far as the wealthy and the poor? That's one. Okay. Uh, Adam Smith's um, uh, answer for what to do with the what to do with the rich. And this is like the father of capitalism right. is to say, well, incentivize them to care about their workers. Do so by giving them awards or like using the, the powers of the government to um, soothe the egos and make it and give them kind of the accolades for doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas a socialist would say, we can't, we can't rely on the goodwill of the rich to, to distribute their wealth. We need to use the, oh, the, the power of the state through taxation to basically coerce the rich into into paying taxes. Right. And I, and, and I I know I, I use some harsh words there to make it sound like that's the, I have like a favorite like I have a I have a favorite answer there. Right. I'm not I'm not trying to use it, but sure. it is using the state to tell to tell somebody what they can do with their resources. Right. And in that in that is in a lot of cases or in some cases necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think about, I know that one argument um, that I've heard made and read made is um, although there is this this gap, this lar- fairly large gap between the rich and the poor, mm-hmm. and that gap is enhanced by capitalism. Mm-hmm. The, I, the argument that I've seen, I've seen made sometimes is that, you know, although the capitalism is spreading the gap between the rich and the poor, mm-hmm. and that gap is big, yeah. um, global poverty as is continuously gone down in recent history. So that, you know, you can overall, it's, it's gotten a little better for those at the bottom. Definitely. And I think so, so socialism itself is the, just basically is the, the state controls the means of production. So the, the state owns what it takes to, to, to make things. So all decisions are made a collective of the workers. You see this a lot, actually, like Senator Warren herself has actually kind of brought about this kind of term. This is, this isn't socialism as you would see under like a communist dictatorship, but it's um, socialism where the, the workers through a collective own the means of production. Oh, interesting. So, So like the workers in a particular industry all get together and decide what is going to what is going to be produced, how much are they going to be produced and what they're going to sell it for mm-hmm. instead of letting the market decide that 
they're letting um, the, the the collection of workers within that company decide right. that. So there isn't any more private ownership mm-hmm. of, of a company where there's like a there's a there's a CEO and there's like a board member. Like then there's the board. The board is the workers, right? Oh, and, and they okay. make all those executive decisions. And and Warren hasn't gone full onto that, but she has, I think, said like thirty percent of boards under her plan would be filled by um, mm-hmm. representatives of the workers. So right. in some of the executive decision making, the the workers have the workers of that particular company have a say in the um, in those in that decision process. One of the resources you sent me had a really interesting point about what you're talking about and in talking about wages mm-hmm. and and this idea of of the you know the the ebbs and flows of, of economics in in a market and for a business if it drops they can no longer afford those workers so they're layoffs or they're you know they're letting mm-hmm. them go um, but this idea of wage you know I just want one consideration to, to be had is this idea of okay so you don't want to lose your job. But a business has a responsibility to cut costs if it's not if if the, if it's not selling a product, mm-hmm. right? So now is that is that worker willing to take a pay cut mm-hmm. or be laid off? And that's kind of you know uh, one of the resources that you sent me was talking about just how it might be almost unfair or might seem wrong to cut wages. So therefore, you see this shift in just laying people off. Mm-hmm. as being a way to cut wages but not lowering wages for workers who still have their jobs at, afterwards. And obviously there there isn't that's not just black and white either. There's right. a, there's Absolutely. a spectrum too. In in social democracy, we'll get into this on the other side of the break. Yeah. We'll we'll discuss the welfare state without without actual taking control of employment. That was an awesome way to transition into what we're going to go into next, but let's first take a break and hear from our sponsors. You've been listening to The Republic. I'm Jeff and I'm Jake. We'll be right back. KXRW would like to thank our friends at New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges, and edibles to CBD topicals, oils, and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvamsterdam.com. That's newvamsterdam.com. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Welcome back to To the Republic. I am Jake, and I'm joined by Jeff Lopez. In our last segment, we discussed the differences between socialism and capitalism and talked a bit about the critiques of both. In this segment, we're going to continue our talk on socialism and then get into a bit of social democracy and why there's an important difference between those two terms. From here, I think we're going to turn it over to The Economist. I found a short clip, I think, that really sums up socialism well. So I'll just let it I'll just let the audio speak for itself. Karl Marx is often described as one of the greatest thinkers of the 19th century. 
His writings have inspired revolutions and generated centuries of fierce debate. Born in Prussia, now Germany, in May 1818, Marx believed that capitalism, which was in its infancy at the time, had serious flaws. Marx claimed that in pursuit of profit, capitalists would encourage their ideology that work is good, leisure is bad, and material things will make us happy. Embracing mass production, depriving workers of job satisfaction, at the same time, exploiting the working class. He became involved in the Communist League, a small group of intellectuals who wanted to abolish the class system and spread wealth equally. Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1847 with his benefactor Friedrich Engels, laying out the Marxist vision of a society where wealth is distributed evenly. Property is owned publicly and education is free for all. But Marx was little known and little read at the time. When he died in 1883, only 11 people attended his funeral. After his death, his ideas flourished. Based on the theory of Marxism came communism, the realization of a stateless society where all are equal. Communism became a global movement, but the utopian ideal of a fair and equal society failed to materialize. Communism tyrannized and impoverished its subjects and slaughtered them in the tens of millions. Today, capitalism dominates the world. But many of Marx's criticisms have never been more relevant. Today, the global disparity between rich and poor is striking. Marx predicted that capitalism would lead to the rich getting richer and the poor staying poor. He was right. He also predicted that capitalism would lead to boom and bust economics. Marx predicted that capitalism would lead to globalization and that a handful of firms would have huge market dominance. However, Marx underestimated the ability of capitalism to make everybody richer by making products much cheaper. Since the 1980s, the number of people in absolute poverty has fallen by about one billion. He also got wrong the capacity of capitalism to reform itself by creating welfare states that redistributed wealth through taxation. Although there is a lot to learn from Marx, his solution was far worse than a disease. At the same time, it can't be said that today's capitalism, dominated by immense inequality and financial crises, has triumphed. So one of the things I found interesting about that video specifically was it's it talking about uh, a number of firms dominating the economy. Right. See, another thing that I think about is is you look at these big, gigantic companies, you know, acquiring other businesses and mm -hmm. kind of dominating over marketplaces. It, you know, Marx is warning against that, right? But then the only the other alternative is the government. So now you're looking at three or four businesses you know, controlling things based on the benefits of their, their production and sales mm -hmm. or the government benefit, you know, controlling things. Th that's why, again, through this whole thing we've talked about, it's not, not either black or white or either, or, mm -hmm. but there has to be a balance between it. And like, I think that socialism does offer some great things um, and arguments that can't be completely just thrown out.
Oh, for sure. So what that video kind of kind of led us to and what we're talking about is um, Marx's critiques on capitalism, which we discussed. But what what is it that socialism brings that might be worth considering? So you have to understand where Marx was coming from from socialism is you have to kind of understand the historical context for sure. in which he was writing. And that was in the height of the British Industrial Revolution, where none of these social programs and that we're kind of accustomed to today, like a seven, I guess, you know, a five day work week, right. a 40 hour work week, having paid holidays, any kind of regulations, if you got hurt, normalities, if you got hurt on the job, there's, you know, there's, there's workers compensation, something right. that you're not just going to end up on the streets if you're hurt, which often happened in these very dangerous jobs working in, in mills and factories. Right. So a lot of the stuff that that was, that wasn't the case. If you were hurt, you were on the streets and you're, you're a beggar. If you, if you were, if you were maimed or, or crippled while on the job, there mm-hmm. was nothing there for you. You basically right. ended up starving. So you have to understand, you know, where his critiques was coming from is that. And I would say like capital capitalists unregulated in its purest form driving for production Mm -hmm. is what he saw in the time he was living in yeah definitely. there was like you said earlier there was no regard for human health environmental health it was all just to produce something Mm -hmm. so that's what his writings were a reaction to yeah and i think that at capitalism at the time was very concerning it, it was, and it forced capitalism to have to reform. Right. And, and another thing that ultimately socialism gives you is um, is that you can you can make you can nationalize or make public goods and services that are absolutely necessities right. for humans to live. And what is the most equitable way of of doing that? Should you have to pay a private company for access to water or is the government better situated to be able to equitably give out, um, to give access to its citizens, those basic necessities, right. or you're relying, or as Adam Smith would say, you're relying on the benevolence. So it, it, there's definitely, you, you can see where some of making those goods public right. have where equity does trump efficiency in, in some areas. And I think that that is that realization is what ultimately led capitalism to revolutionize into uh, more reforms that you see prior, you know, after well, actually after the Great Depression, but mm-hmm. really after World War II right. is when you, after coming out of that Great Depression, World War II, and you start to see what massive global inequality create, that gets us into um, Keynesian economics, which was capitalism's answer to the rising of socialism. Mm-hmm. And those reforms, those reforms, I think, were, were instrumental in capitalism survival in, in relevance today. So we'll get into another video from Learn Liberty that I think really discusses this well. Simple way to think about the Keynesian model. Keynesian, New Keynesian, but let's, let's boil it down to essentials. Economic downturns are very often caused by a shortfall in aggregate demand. Aggregate demand you can think of very crudely as spending. So more formally, aggregate demand is consumption plus investment plus government spending. Think of that as a flow of funds, a flow of revenue directed to producers of goods and services. Consumption plus investment plus government spending. If aggregate demand falls, in essence that means the flow of revenue 
to producers of goods and services is also falling, or it's lower than it had been, or lower than we want it to be. And this creates a problem of economic adjustment. The question then is, how well does an economy handle this problem of economic adjustment? There, there exists an equilibrium, to use that famous economic phrase, which has become a kind of joke, but there exists an equilibrium in which that flow of spending falls, and at more or less the same time, wages fall also. So even though spending is down, costs and expenses are down, and businesses can keep on producing what they had been producing, keep output at its previous level, keep profits at their previous level, and so on. But although that's a possible equilibrium, very often that's not what happens. There's a problem, and economists call it price and wage stickiness. Let's focus on wage stickiness. So if we're talking about costs falling for a business, for a lot of businesses, the main cost, especially at the margin, is labor cost. It's hiring more people. It's paying someone to do something. So if your revenue is falling, to keep your same profit in real inflation-adjusted terms, uh, it's very hard to cut the wages of your workers because workers don't like having their wages cut for reasons which are maybe emotional or economists would call behavioral. But think of it as a problem of morale. If you've been working seven years at a company and all of a sudden your wage is cut, you feel like you're not valued anymore, you feel like maybe you'll be fired, uh, you feel you're, you're not treated very well, you complain about the boss, you don't work as hard, maybe you create trouble in extreme conditions, you sabotage production. Uh, and it's very costly for bosses in many situations to cut the wages of their employees. So wages are somewhat sticky, and often if that flow of revenue is slowing down, what will happen is the employers lay off some of the laborers, very often the least abled ones, and then you have increased unemployment. Those people don't have jobs, their expenditures fall, that in turn contracts revenue streams for other parts of the economy, and you get this progressive downturn where many different sectors at once are all shrinking or contracting or falling back because of this initial shortfall of aggregate demand combined with what economists call price and wage stickiness. Particular strengths of the Keynesian model. The first strength of the Keynesian model, first and most obvious strength, is that it explains a good deal of real-world business fluctuations. That is, you can go out and look at economic history and you find numerous important cases where a major problem or the major problem has been a shortfall in aggregate demand. The classic example, I think, is the Great Depression. Go back to 1929 through 1932. You have a very large number of bank failures in the United States. People essentially lose their checking accounts or lose part of that value. Consumer spending is much lower. There's a big negative shock to aggregate demand. And as a result, you end up with this shortfall in economic output. The Keynesian model explains some parts of the Great Depression very well. So Keynesian economics or demand, like demand side economics, as the, as the video kind of points out, is right. basically what it's doing is it's creating that well, there's there's multiple components to it. But one of the most important things is, is the welfare state. And that is that instead of completely making the, the means of production owned by the state, this, the means of production are still owned by private entities. But there's much there is there is government um there is government control over mm -hmm. certain um, aspects of the economy, and there's there's levers that the governments can use that the government can use 
to help stem the tide of those really vol- that real volatile economy that capitalism creates where right. you have booms where production is really, really high and everybody's really doing well. But then the, on the peak side, they're doing really, really poorly. Mm-hmm. And the people who suffer the worst in those boom and bust economies are the middle and lower class. Right. Um, the, the rich have a lot higher ability to weather those those storms Absolutely. than, say, somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. So what, what the welfare state and what Keynesian economics attempts to do is to create those social safety nets. So because people go unemployed for a lot of different things, right? Not just because you're lazy. If, you're a, if you were a candlestick maker when Edison invented the light bulb, you're doomed. That's, that's not your fault, <laughs> right? Like it wasn't because you were a bad candle maker. It was because the market changed right. and that business cycle created that that unemployment. Right, right. So having a social safety net where where someone can not end up having a live, losing their home and, and and they're out on the streets because they can't pay their bills that month, having some sort of government program there that allows somebody to stay afloat long enough to find a job in a new industry, to go into retrainment, are all very equitable programs mm-hmm. in, in policies without intruding on the, the overall health that capitalism does bring to the economy in terms of production and right. entrepreneurship. So you still get, you kind of get ultimately the best of both worlds. Absolutely. Here. There's a balance. Mm-hmm. The other side of the Keynesian economic model is monetary policy. And I think you, you see, that with the, with, see this with the creation of the Fed. Mm-hmm. And that is that you have fiscal policy, which is like taxation and government spending. Right. And that's, that's, that is completely designed by Congress and the president. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Fed, at least in the, in the U.S. model, controls monetary policy. So they control the amount of money that's in the economy. And this wasn't, pre- this wasn't present prior to, prior to the Great Depression. But after the Great Depression, they instituted this. And what the, what the, what the, the Fed does and what monetary policy does is that when the... When the economy is really booming, mm-hmm. right? The, the 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 Fed will limit the amount of money that is that is in the economy by <clears throat> lowering the 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 amount of money that the banks can lend out. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that does is that it, it tries to stem inflation. Right. So when ultimately that cycle does take a downturn, mm-hmm. it's not as bad as it was had it there had been no reg- regulation because right. inflation will cause will cause poor. Um, will cause higher peaks and troughs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Vice versa, if the economy is doing really bad, they will inf- they will influx the economy with money to help mm. try to spur aggregate demand, trying to increase buying right. to get production higher. So Going then, again. so right. so money will 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 flow back into the economy. The dis the the disadvantage to Keynesian economics mm-hmm. is that you're sacrificing those periods of six to ten percent of of GDP growth in a particular quarter or a year, right? For only maybe two or three, but you're not having those periods of six to eight percent drops right. with massive amounts of unemployment on the backside. That's why you're going to. That's why you you do see today higher periods of growth because a lot of those restrictions that were on that those those banks to lend, especially the big national banks, mm-hmm. those restrictions starting to go away. They can lend more. That puts more money into the economy. That creates more creates more wealth, but what is going to happen on the on, on, on the flip side of that? Right. And I think that's where we're at today. It's almost um, it's almost not allowing, but permitting the the capitalist system to operate in a way that also supports the the social needs when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's uh, that's a that's a good way to, to to sum it up. Right, I could absolutely see the whole time you were saying all that, you know. Okay, now this now this is why 
This is important when you're watching these debates Mm -hmm. and not just the debates on the Democratic side, but listening to your local representatives and the things that they're saying. And when they're talking about markets being dictated and and controlled by the government or controlled by private entities. And and it's, it's real easy for people to say, like, I don't use that. So why am I paying for that? But you never know when the time may come when you do need something like that. Again, it's not either or it's not absolute on one way or the other, but you can definitely see how all of these ideas, these economic theories have integrated to kind of put us where we are now. That's a really good point, Jeff, and I think it sums up this episode perfectly. So I think we're just about out of time, so we're going to wrap it up. Thank you guys for listening. been listening to To the Republic on KXRW. I'm Jake. And I'm Jeff. See you next month. KXRW would like to thank our friends at New Vansterdam for supporting our programming. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges, and edibles to CBD topicals, oils, and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Taproom and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events include wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Taproom and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop-in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.say-chow.com. That's www.say-chao.com or directly at 360-210-5522.